This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. AF8 stands for Alpine Fault Magnitude 8, and it's a program of scientific modelling, coordinated response planning, and community engagement designed to build collective resilience to the next Alpine Fault earthquake across the South Island. The AF8 Roadshow passed through Otatahi Christchurch this week and featured Tom Wilson, a professor of disaster risk and resilience at the University of Canterbury, and he spoke about the potential impacts of a large Alpine Fault earthquake in our region. We're we're talking about the Alpine Fault, and it's what we call a plate boundary fault. So it's where two big tectonic plates meet. And we have the Pacific Plate, which is what we're sitting on or standing on um, right now here in Christchurch. And then on the west coast, we have the Australian Plate. And here in the South Island, they're basically grinding past each other. And most of that, that, uh, that movement is taken up by the Alpine Fault, around about 75% of it, we, uh, the, the geologists and seismologists estimate. This, um, as we've got the Alpine Fault here in the South Island, but as we head towards the north, we've got uh, that plate boundary continues through Wellington and then off, um, slightly off the, the east coast of North Island and um, into the Hikarangi uh, subduction zone, and, uh, which you can sort of see on this, this graphic here. That where New Zealand or Aotearoa is based on this plate boundary, that what, that's what gives rise to our spectacular natural landscape and all the resources and splendour that we, that we live within. Um, but it's a very, very dynamic, active place in the context of the earth. We are, if we're looking for action, we are absolutely at the right place. We are highly, highly active. And we've seen a bit of that over the last 10 years or 10, 15 years where We've uh, probably come out of a, a relatively low seismicity period over the last uh, 50 years, up until 2010. And then since then, we've, we've had a number of earthquakes um, ticking along, which uh, is, is, prob- is what we would certainly expect from uh, a, a plate boundary setting like New Zealand. Now, to home in on the Alpine Fault, the way that we try and understand faults and what the types of earthquakes that they can produce... Um, is, is kind of best described, if you can follow along with me, or if you don't want to, you don't have to, but it's fun if you do, I promise. So if you get your two hands, and you bring them together, like that, and then push them together as hard as you can, and then move them like that. Now what you've just done is you've simulated an earthquake. Congratulations. <laughs> so what you're hopefully detected, if you're a little bit like me, either your hands are a bit cold or whatever, but you, you've got a bit of heat being generated. So what's happening there is you've got what's called a fault plane, so it's, uh, fault lines aren't just two-dimensional things in, on a map. You're actually looking at, at, at a fault plane where it's a three-dimensional structure. And when we have an earthquake, we have those two fault planes moving against each other. And energy is released when you have that movement. So there's kinetic energy and there's that, we felt the thermal energy on our hands, but we see that in the form of, of seismic waves uh, in an earthquake. And that's the waves that, that radiate out away from an earthquake and can cause damage to, to our landscape, to our buildings, and, and give us a bit of a fright uh, if, we, uh, if they're strong enough. The way that we're interested in understanding these, these earthquakes and from the, faults, from the fault lines themselves is we, we, the first place that we want to start is what is the magnitude of the earthquake 
that we're likely to see from these fault lines. And the way that we calculate that is how much energy might be released when we have that earthquake. So how much, how big is that fault plane? So how big is your hand? And how much is the movement going to be? And that gives us a way that we can estimate how much energy might be released. Um, so the way to think of it is, is how big is it and how much energy is being released. The next big thing that we want to try and understand is, well, what's the likelihood of this, this earthquake occurring? So we can call that frequency or probability or, or whatever, but when is the next event going to occur? So that's, I'll walk you through that. And I think that's, it's one of the most compelling aspects of the science that's been unravelled over the last 10 years on the Alpine Fault, and that we have one of the most, or the best world-class records for information on, on the, uh, the Alpine Fault there. But where we want to try and make it even more useful for society and for our emergency management friends and, and those of you that are uh, actively managing this, is we, we also want to know what is the area that's going to be affected or the spatial extent, or we use the term hazard footprint. So how, how big an area is going to be affected and what is the intensity of the ground shaking going to be across that hazard footprint. So what I mean by that is when I do a clap like that, energy's been released, but for those of you in the front row, you will have had a, probably a much louder sound uh, from that clap than those of you at the back because we've got the sound waves attenuating. And it's the same with an earthquake. If we're close to the fault that's rupturing, the energy that you're experiencing is very intense, very, um, there's a lot of energy that you're experiencing there. But as it moves away, it's attenuating away. So the intensity of the ground shaking that you experience is much reduced. So that's why when we have an earthquake, for example, in close to Kaikoura, uh, the ground shaking in Kaikoura is much, much, much stronger than what we would experience here in Christchurch, such as what we had with the, the 2016 earthquake there. So those are the sort of concepts that, we're, that I'll, I'll be using a little bit as we go through this talk. But for most of us, that's, that's all well and good, but what we want to know is what are the impacts? What, what is this going to do to us? Why is, why is this meaningful to me? And then, most importantly, what can we do to manage them and, and ideally reduce those, those potential impacts? So that's, that's kind of the structure of the talk um, today. I'm under strict instructions from Brendan to keep it tight to 45 minutes. So um, when you see him agitated at the back, you'll, you'll, I know I'll be trying to wrap it up. The other um, sort of things that I wanted to introduce as well is because is, uh, I'm, a, I'm a hazard risk scientist um, and so I get a bit lazy sometimes, I, I fall into, into jargon. But, so I just wanted to explain how I'm using some of these, these terms as well. And I, I think it's a, it's a useful way to kind of think about some of these things. So when we're talking about a hazard, we're talking about a, a process or a phenomena which could potentially cause negative or, or potentially positive impacts to society. So I'm thinking like ground shaking or landslides or liquefaction. If they were to happen, if there was no people around, well, it's not really a hazard. But if we, um, if we are around and we're interacting with it, well, it's, it's potentially going to cause us harm. On the other side of the, of the conceptual diagram, um, excuse the jargon, is what might be exposed. So that could be people, could be buildings, could be our cultural assets, our economic assets, or um, anything that we, we value. And when we bring them together, it's that notion of vulnerability. And I think I've got young kids, so I love a good fairy tale, where the three piggies and the big bad wolf, I think, is a useful analogy here. So if we think of the big bad wolf being the hazard, where he or she is huffing and puffing, trying to blow their houses down, but they've all got different houses. So the hazard's the same, but the houses and their vulnerability characteristics are different. 
So straw, stick, brick are going to resist that big bad wolf's breath in a different way. So that's where the choices that we make in terms of how we build our society, whether it be with our bricks and mortar, or how we design or where we choose to build, where our land and, um, and how we utilise our land, how we choose to educate ourselves and, and so our risk awareness, those are all things that modify our vulnerability, or we can flip it and maybe think of it of our resilience. Um, so that's, that's kind of how we, we bring all this together. Okay, enough of the background, let's hook into it. So what we're seeing on the left here is a beautiful shot looking along from the south to the north of the South Island, and hopefully for those that are there, your, your brain is starting to pick up a quite nice linear pattern. Oh, of course, you can't see my mouse, that would make sense. Forgive me, I'm going to go walk about. So what you're hopefully seeing is that nice lineament that you're seeing along the, the backbone of the, um, of the Southern Alps. Now that was, that was picked up by geologists and, and others um, 20, oh, excuse me, um, uh, many, many, many years, many decades ago and wondered what that natural feature might be. And what we're starting to see there is we can see that that's, that's where our plate boundary is. This is where most of the Alpine Fault um, exists. And what we now know is that our tectonic plates are grinding into each other at the rate that your fingernails grow, depending on how many avocados you've had. So it's about 40 millimetres per year, and they're colliding into each other and grinding past each other in a relative motion. Where that, how that's taken up is there's around about 10 millimetres per year, on average, is being uplifted. So that's why we have the Southern Alps. That's why we have those big spectacular mountain ranges. But most of that movement is being picked up laterally or horizontally and, uh, at around about 25, 30 millimetres per year. Now, it doesn't all happen in one go. There, it's in fits and starts. We have big earthquake events that, that allow that motion to occur. So that's, uh, that's the, the background as to how, that, uh, how the South Island's deforming. Um, sorry, I've got, this is a new slide deck, so I'm just getting used to it. So just putting it all in context, we're part of the, um, the Alpine Fold. It's part of our plate boundary where we're part of the Pacific Ring of Fire. And uh, it's a key part of that, uh, that pl plate, tectonic plate boundary interface that we have uh, here in Aotearoa. So geologists back in the day, and what I mean by back in the day is the 1930s and particularly the 1940s, there was a guy, Harold Wellman, who was a famous geologist here in the South Island, and he picked up that there's this big long uh, lineament or, or this, this straight line in the landscape. But really importantly identified that there's um, a particular type of rock in central Otago or southwestland and into central Otago, which is the same as a similar as, a, as a, the rock that's up in um, uh, sort of western Marlborough and eastern Nelson. And it was confounding to geologists, how on earth are they both up there? And there seems to be this big dislocation of three to 400 kilometres uh, distance between. And that was one of the key giveaways that maybe there's a great big fault line here. And so, oh sorry, there's some uh, images of, of the similar rock type that you can see uh, in those different locations. But I've got a handy dandy little video here which hopefully will work. Is that playing? Oh, there we go. So what the, uh, what the thinking is from the geologists is that over the last 20, well, 18 to 20 million years is that's when the Alpine Fault's been active and we're just seeing a regular cycle of earthquakes pinging away and slowly separating out that... Uh, uh, those, that rock um, 
those two rock types. So that's one of our really important lines of evidence that shows us that we've got a very mature fault that's been active for a long period of time uh, and uh, a little bit of a, a cool history around how it was, was picked up and identified. Sorry, I'm just going to breeze through that. Okay, so I can see Brendan giving me the eye already. I think I'm falling behind time. So the way that I want, I want to get onto, so we, we, we can identify there's an alpine fault there and we think it's about 350 to maybe 400 kilometres long. So that tells us how long our fault plane might be, at least in that, that axis. So when we're thinking about, well, what does that mean? What, how, so therefore, how big are the earthquakes going to be? Well, we can start to use our knowledge from around the world and, and start to put this together. So when you have a, a fault plane that's about the size of the, four, of the area of Christchurch, which we sit within here within the four avenues, um, as the size of your hand, and it's moving about 10 centimetres. So imagine the four avenues of Christchurch on the palm of your hand moving about 10 centimetres. That's a magnitude 5 earthquake. So that's how much energy is released when you have the four avenues of Christchurch area on the size of your hand moving 10 centimetres. That's about a magnitude 5 earthquake. And we had one, of, well, it was about a 4.6 um, recently here in uh, affected Christchurch. So we're sort of in that ballpark. That's, that's how much of the fault plane would have moved under Christchurch. When we go up to a magnitude 7, that's where we have two Christchurch urban areas on the palm of our hand moving several metres. So that's very similar to what we had with the Darfield earthquake in 2010 on the 4th of September. But when we go up to a magnitude 8, it's more in the order of 10,000 square kilometres that we have on the palm of our hand, moving about 4 to 5, maybe 6 metres. And that's what we think the Alpine Fault is capable of, with its 350 or 380 kilometre length. That's what that translates into, is that it's, it's likely maximum earthquake, or, or the upper bound of the earthquake, would be about a magnitude 8. So that's, that sets us up well in terms of starting to plan for what we might, might need to be preparing for. So that's our magnitude. Now we're on to frequency. So what's the likelihood? So up until relatively recently, we were quite confident that we had a good understanding of the, about when the last three earthquakes on the Alpine Fault uh, occurred within the last 2,000 years. And the evidence for that was where we could see trees had been deformed by a big shaking event or where there'd been landsliding or, or whatever, um, but also where we could see landsliding in the, in the landscape. And in particular, where we see rivers that cross the fault trace or where the fault line is, and you can see that they've been moved and that they've been uh, shunted. Because when we have an Alpine Fault earthquake, we, we can see up to four to five, sometimes more than almost eight metres of horizontal movement on that fault line. So you can imagine what that does to a river when you've got the river trying to merrily flow along and then it's being deformed and, and, and moved. And what that usually means is it's a great opportunity to trap organic matter under big lens of gravel. And especially if you're in somewhere like a wetland, which is quite sensitive to that. So what you can start to do is date all of those bits of carbon where there's been a, a disturbance in the landscape and allows you to build a record of where we think there's been earthquake events. Now, the thing that we wanted to then do is go all the way along the fault line and try and find these environments where we can date those disturbances in the landscape, and it starts to build a picture of where we're seeing big disturbances at a regional level, which all seem to line up along this, this, uh, this fault line. And that's how we start to date previous earthquakes. 
So what you're seeing here on this, uh, this graph, and I, even on the size of this massive screen, it's a bit difficult to see the, um, the text size, but what it is is on the, uh, um, on the right-hand side, um, for those of you with good eyes, you'll see it's 2000 AD is one of the pips there. So it's basically where we are. So if we just go a little bit to the right of that, that's where we are in 2023 as of today. And then as you go left across that axis, you're going back in time. And so you're going back to 600, oh, excuse me, 6,000 BC or, or 8,000 years ago. So we're going back in time as we go that way. What the um, earthquake geologists and, and other um, nerdy types like me have been, well, I'm not brave enough to go traipsing around in the rainforest over there, but they, they've been able to go over there and, and date a lot of these um, different areas. And they've been able to get this absolutely world-class record of, uh, earthquake events on the Alpine Fault going back 8,000 years, which is just extraordinary. So they've picked up 20, what they think is 27 events on the Alpine Fault that they can date back through time. And it's not just one site. They're able to correlate that across multiple sites um, in the area. And so what you're seeing with those little wiggles on the, uh, on the graph here is that those are the radiocarbon dates and the estimated age of what that, uh, what that carbon age um, is. And the, the, the blobby bit is the uncertainty that they've got there. But the, the thing to take away from, from data like this is just how straight or linear that relationship is. And that's, that's really indicative of a old, mature fault line that's been cranking along for millions of years and, uh, and is well lubricated, where it's ground up the rock and it's able to rupture quite, quite regularly through time. What's really cool about this um, is that it allows us to, to really dig into that record. And here's just an image um, of what some of those um, organic layers that have been overlain by, by gravels. Uh, so the dark layers are the organic rich um, layers and then they're overlain by these gravel events where we've had this big earthquake and it's, it's created a whole bunch of sediment um, in the landscape. As I said, they've, they've looked across all sorts of different sites here and one of the more novel uh, or the newer techniques that they're looking at that they've been doing is getting into some of the lakes that are close to the Alpine Fault and putting down basically a great big piston and sampling the, the sediment in the lakes. And again, looking at where there's big influxes of sediment uh, at regular intervals, which again seem to correlate really nicely with estimated Alpine Fault earthquake events. So there's all these really cool lines of data or, or data sets that are informing this, this, uh, um, this um, understanding. So what it all means is that we can take away from this information that the Alpine Fault has a long, arguably proud history of earthquakes on the fault line, probably for millions of years. They're remarkably regular through time, uh, as I said before, and so the conclusion there is that there's no reason to assume that they'll stop. The average recurrence interval, or it's a fancy way of saying when we think the, the average time that it takes between earthquakes seems to be about 300 years from that, that data set that I showed you before of the 27 earthquake events. And the last significant earthquake on the Alpine Fault was in 1717 AD. So for those of you, this is a great part for me looking at the audience where everyone's like, oh, <laughs> that's not good. So that's about 306 years ago. So what that means is it doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to have an earthquake tomorrow. 
it just means that the probability, uh, or that we're, we're probably towards the end of the seismic cycle of the earthquake. So if you, you can almost think of it like the fault line's a bit like a spring and it's winding, and we're getting towards the point where it, it's quite tightly wound. So we're at a period of time uh, where there's a, a relatively high probability of an earthquake occurring on that fault line. And as I said, I'm not stressing it's not going to happen tomorrow necessarily, although touch wood, touch metal. It just means that every day that we go without that earthquake occurring, the probability increases uh, in small amounts. But the statistics that we can use with this is that, and it's quite useful, I think, in this way, where there's a 75% probability of an earthquake on the Alpine Fault in the next 50 years. So in our lifetime or in our children's lifetime, there's a damn good chance that we'll see it. Um, and if that earthquake does occur, there's an 80, about an 80% chance that it'll be uh, the whole fault rupturing, so, and that would lead to a magnitude 8 earthquake, which is sobering stuff. But it, this is why we put effort into the preparing for an event like this and why emergency management takes it very seriously and there's all this science investment going into it and, and so on, and why you, you very fine folk are here tonight and um, we're hopefully equipping you with this knowledge and very keen for you to share it. Okay, so the way that we've gone about this within the Alpine or the AF8 programme is we've developed a scenario of what might a future Alpine fault earthquake look like. So we've made some assumptions in that, that it'll be a magnitude 8 and that it'll have um, major, what we've called cascading consequences for the South Island and probably the Lower North Island and of course likely to have significant impacts. But again, I stress the choices we make now and in the future will hopefully reduce what those impacts will be. But just to put it in context, and again, um, it's worth keeping in mind what that magnitude number is useful for. So when we think about the amount of energy that's released in a magnitude 8 earthquake, here's a graphical representation of the amount of energy that was released with the Christchurch earthquake in 22nd of February 2011. So really quite small in the scheme of things, um, but the problem was it was right underneath the city. And so um, without in any way wanting to trivialise it, uh, it was a real bullseye on, on Christchurch, sadly. When we go up to the magnitude 7.1 Darfield earthquake, uh, that's how much energy was released there. So dramatically more, but because it was further away from Christchurch, we had much less impacts here in the city. Uh, very severe impacts in some of the rural areas, but much less severe impacts in the city because we, we had that benefit of being away, uh, having that distance from the, from the fault line. Even though it wasn't too much, you know, 30, 35 kilometres, um, that was beneficial. This is how much energy proportionally was released in the magnitude 7.8 Kaikoura earthquake in 2016. So again, dramatically bigger. But again, it was much further away, and importantly, much of that rupture direction went north. So Christchurch received quite a, quite a modest shake for the size of the earthquake that it experienced. And that's what a magnitude 8 Alpine Fault earthquake, or, or excuse me, just any magnitude 8 earthquake, that's how much energy relative uh, to the others uh, releases. So even though it's only 0.2 uh, more on the scale, remember it's an exponential scale, 
So, so much more energy does get released. And so that's why we, certainly when we get up into the, into the high sevens and, and eights and, and heaven forbid nines, that's when we really start to take those, those earthquake hazards very, very seriously, both at a national level and, and internationally. So you're describing that. That's what we would like to feel in Christchurch. But what I'm interested in is we're 200 kilometres away from where that fault's going to go. So what happens if you're 20 kilometres away from where that fault's going to go? Great question. If you can bear with me, the next slides will answer that, uh, answer that question. But, but if I don't answer it adequately, please do bring it up again. But you're spot on. I think I want to stress with this is this is the energy that's released at the site of the, of the fault line. So as a, as a gentleman um, correctly deduced, one of the, the next thing that we need to really look at is what is the shaking intensity going to be across that hazard footprint or across, across the nation? So this is a very, very simple, um, uh, what we call a shake map, or an area where we're showing uh, areas of equal shaking intensity. So where we have uh, the orange or red, um, that's where we have very high um, shaking intensities. Uh, and so as you can see with this, this representation, uh, it's along the Alpine Fault uh, itself. So the West Coast is, is, showing, is being represented here as having a very um, high uh, intensity shaking. And then it attenuates away. So as we look across the, uh, the South Island and across here to Canterbury, uh, we can see that we, we are forecast to have what we would regard as moderate levels of shaking. And I'll, if, you, if you can forgive me, I mean, my grad students who are in the audience are going to give me a lot of grief about this, but what we would sort of expect is something like this. Is <laughs> this sort of motion. So it'll go on, and I've got a really cool simulation to show you this in a minute. You can show my lack of rhythm here quite badly, but, but that's, that's what we'd experience. Whereas for those of you, for those of you that can recall the, the Christchurch earthquake, it was much more like this, much more violent, very extreme shaking, very, very high intensity, um, but, but for about 12 seconds. Um, I mean, gosh, for many of us it felt like a lifetime, but it was, it was quite a short period of time. Whereas that rolling motion... Kind of like what we have with the Kaikoura earthquake, but probably just a wee bit, wee bit more, will probably go on for minutes. And so that's the difference, and that's, that's where um, trying to convey this information uh, across to everyone is, is really important. Just for comparison, oh, sorry, so the point here is um, the whole of the South Island will definitely feel this. In fact, the entire nation will, will feel all of this. Sydney will probably feel this earthquake. But the, the thing to remember is that New Zealand is, is built quite strongly. We have high building codes, and we, there's, yeah, there's always challenges, but the, much of the nation will be okay with this event. And so the, the thing is to really home in on where we think there's going to be challenges and what can we do to, to really support those areas. By comparison, that's the same um, computer model that looks at the Darfield earthquake and the Christchurch earthquake. Um, so the 2010 and the 2011 earthquakes, respectively. So we can characterise them, and I don't at all mean to be uh, to, to downplay their impacts, but that they were much more regional in terms of the impact that they had, um, f uh, physically at least. Uh, of course, um, they were major events for the nation in so many ways. So what we, uh, as I said, we're, we're developing this scenario, and what we've chosen to do is to have a rupture scenario where the fault line ruptures from the south to the north. And the reason for that is that it's, it's probably the most impactful for the nation. And it'll, that's, so that's a good place to plan around and to, to start. 
But it's important to note we we the, or the science community doesn't really have much of, indica- uh, of any real indication of where that rupture will begin, whether it's in the south, whether it's in the middle, whether it's in the north. There's a little bit of work, or there's quite a lot of work going on to try and answer that, but, but certainly nothing definitive at the moment. But on a precautionary basis, we're looking at a south to north rupture scenario. And with, um, sorry, I'll just pause that there. What I'm going to show you now is a physics-based simulation of what the shaking intensities uh, might look like across the South Island. Now, it's going to be a south-to-north rupture scenario, and uh, just want a big credit to Brendan Bradley from the University of Canterbury and his team for developing this work, because uh, it gives us a really good insight into what these big earthquakes can look like. So I'm just going to talk you through it. I'll run it twice, um, and there's the YouTube link here if, if, uh, if you want it, or um, feel free to email me afterwards and I can send it through to you, because it's quite cool to look at. So what we're seeing here is a visualisation of the earthquake starting in the south and rupturing towards the north. Now, it's just a visualisation. We're not going to see the Southern Alps ejected up into the, um, well, stratosphere, um, you know, tens or hundreds of kilometres here. But what you're seeing here is a representation of the peak ground velocity. So it's basically how strong is the shaking. What you're seeing is uh, the fault line unzipping from the south to the north, and the seismic energy, remember the, remember the heat you generated on your hands, it's trying to get away from the, uh, it's trying to radiate out away from that rupture zone. But as the fault ruptures, it's rupturing about the same speed as that energy can move away. So what you're seeing here is as that energy starts to build, we get this kind of big wave train starting to develop, and we're seeing that energy enter into the sloppy Canterbury Basin of our unconsolidated gravels and silts and everything else, and that amplifies the shaking. And then Christchurch is just starting to get it, and you can see that energy um, resonating in the Christchurch basin, where the, the waves are bouncing off the boundaries of the basin a bit, and we're, we're seeing a bit of resonance, resonance there. It's kind of like a bell ringing, as an analogy. Um, earthquake's still going, so the earthquake's been going for about, or the rupture's occurred for about three minutes, and Nelson's just, just received the shaking, uh, Blenheim, and now Wellington's about to, about to get the good news. So, I'll run that again, because it's always interesting, this is always a bit of a highlight of the talk. But what I, sorry, there we go, computer's behaving now. So what this provides us is, as, as our scientific models are starting to become much more um, sophisticated, it allows us with a much, and it's a fantastic um, visual communication tool, but it's also tremendously useful when we're able to um, have this type of information inform our, our, um, in the engineering fields, critical infrastructure, our, our buildings, and what are we likely to see in terms of our impacts to landscapes and so on, and forecasting, for example, where landslides and so on might occur. But again, just making that point, we're, we're mostly in bedrock here, where we're seeing uh, those waves moving through. And then as we enter into the Canterbury uh, Basin, or into the Canterbury Plains, we see a bit more of that amplification of the, the shaking. Now, it's, it's easy to feel quite bothered by that, or, or quite confronted. And you're totally right. It confronted me the first time I saw it. But it's worth giving some perspective, where... That shaking is, is, like I was saying, it's more like this. It's not that violent, um, aggressive shaking that we felt with the Canterbury or Christchurch earthquakes. It'll be much more of a rolling motion. Uh, it will continue for minutes. Um, so, you know, again, still 
um, drop cover and hold and so on. But we're unlikely to see um, this anywhere near the same degree of impacts that we had with the, certainly the Christchurch earthquake or, or probably even the Darfield earthquake. The challenge that you can see here, though, is that this will be a South Island-wide event. Okay, well, with all that good news. So, the point, of, especially for the Canterbury region, with this particular scenario, we'll, we'll definitely feel it. Um, we'll all be impacted in different ways, but again, we just stress the point. There's lots of choices here. We can prepare for this. And most of us have all been through something like this before, multiple times uh, in many cases. So in many respects, and I, I'm hoping Brendan will, uh, and the CCC, uh, Christchurch City Council Civil Defence Team, will, will speak a little bit to this, is Christchurch in many ways is very well set up for this, in that we've, we have big, resilient infrastructure, we've got very, um, a lot of investment here, and we've got a lot of knowledge um, in our community around this. We're very much likely to be a hub for the rest of the South Island in supporting the impacts that we might, might see. Okay, so with that in mind, one of the things that's really important to, uh, with these types of events, and again, it's always, it's, uh, always feels a bit silly saying this to Christchurch audiences, but it's the secondary hazards which can be the most impactful from these big events, especially in, uh, in societies or countries where uh, we have a, a high degree, a relatively high degree of preparedness for uh, earthquakes. So the earthquake itself, it's, it's not just all about the initial ground shaking. Earthquakes in mountainous terrain can lead to landslides. When landslides run down and block rivers, we have quake lakes forming, and sometimes they can break out very rapidly and have our dam break floods. These types of hazards um, we've seen with, uh, after the Kaikoura earthquake, and we would expect to see extensive landsliding across the Southern Alps um, from an Alpine fault earthquake. There's heaps of evidence from previous big earthquakes um, of that occurring, and so there's every reason to expect that that's likely to occur. We, of course, will have aftershocks. Again, this is an audience that generally we don't need to, to stress that too much. Um, but we could also have weather events coming through and, uh, and other challenges, you know, whether it be winter or, or, or summer. Um, wildfire might be a challenge and, and certainly summery conditions too. And I think it's an important observation um, that often these secondary hazards can be much more challenging to manage than the, the primary hazard or, or the main uh, earthquake shaking. And we see evidence of that across Indonesia uh, with the Boxing Day or the Indian Ocean tsunami in 2004, uh, with Japan with the big earthquake there in 2011. Um, it was really the tsunami that was the, probably the most challenging for them. Here in Christchurch, liquefaction and landslide or the, the Port Hills, arguably some of the things that challenged us um, and with the Kaikoura uh, earthquake in 2016, it was definitely the landsliding, which was one of the big challenges there. And, and I guess if you're in Wellington, the, the liquefaction was a, was a challenge too. So it's worth keeping that in mind, especially as we are preparing for this, but also to, to drive our, our societal planning um, as to what our expectations are with, uh, with managing these, these, uh, these hazards. So when we look at this in terms of our critical infrastructure networks, um, one of the things that we, we developed was uh, the, the science team uh, started to produce um, landslide forecast models. And that's what we're seeing on this um, spectacularly coloured um, map here, is that it's a, uh, an areas in red, uh, areas with a high probability of landslides in a future Alpine fault earthquake. And as you might um, have guessed, it's, it's close to the fault where we expect to have high 
intensity ground shaking, but it also includes things like the steepness of the slope, the geology, and a, and a few other factors as well. But when we look at that in terms of our South Island um, state highway network, it paints quite an interesting picture where a lot of our passes, or our, our um, road or tr ground transport passes through steep landslide-prone terrain. Um, so we can see with Lewis Pass up the top there, um, Arthur's Pass is very red, um, Haas Pass and then into Milford Sound, they're all likely to be highly exposed to landsliding. And we, we've had a dress rehearsal with this with the Kaikoura earthquake. The challenge, well, I think for anyone, it's, it's blatantly obvious that the West Coast is, has a very high potential to be isolated uh, in an event like this, and they will have severe impacts uh, in their region. So that creates a real challenge for when we're thinking around uh, resilience and preparedness there. And I'm sure Brendan will talk a little bit more about that as, as a wrap-up at the end. Um, I think it's, it's a confronting topic, and I, I, I'm really conscious of not trying to be a, a doom merchant or... or, or uh, um, focus too much on the negatives, but I think we need to be realistic. We will have alpine passes out of action for months, and I would suggest probably years in some cases. There will be strategic decisions of which passes will be reopened and which won't, or which will be delayed, and we saw some of that play out after the Kaikoura earthquakes in 2016. So it's well worth keeping that in mind as we're thinking around uh, our planning both for the immediate response but also for the longer-term recovery after an event like this. And it's got spectacularly important implications for our tourism sector, for example, with the West Coast, of course, being one of the jewels of our, of our crown. In terms of our electricity network, um, we can do the same thing. And the news is, is actually, and I should have stressed this for the, for the roading network as well, on the East Coast, it's looking pretty good, which is great. So the... Whilst, the, again, the West Coast is, is potentially um, isolated, um, we see much of our transmission um, network or our high-voltage transmission network um, through relatively low probability areas of, oh, excuse me, low probability of landslide uh, areas. And the, um, so that, I guess that gives us a great degree of uh, reassurance, but also that uh, it certainly sparks a lot of conversations for the likes of Transpower and our electricity companies to think around what some of these secondary impacts might have as well as the, the ground shaking as well. There, of course, is challenges around what the generators will do, whether our hydroelectric dams will, how they will fare with, with a shake like this. It's certainly of high priority for, for them to be considering. Um, but I think one of the, 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 the things that we can expect is at least some of the generators to shut down for at least short periods of time whilst they do safety checks. So it is likely that areas in the South Island will be without power for at least hours uh, after an event like this. Um, of course, New Zealand's a big, long, well, not a big, it's a long, skinny country, and our distribution or our distributed infrastructure networks are the same. They're stretched out and there's not a lot of redundancy in them. So we do have lots of single points of failure. So again, it's a, a broader resilience uh, conversation that we, we can have there around what our expectations on our critical infrastructure services will be. But what I can at least provide some reassurance of is that our critical infrastructure partners have really been one of the, the, the big um, successful stories, I think, out of the AF8 programme, where they've really uh, uh, looked at this very hard and done a lot of planning around this, and, and investment into their um, infrastructure, which has uh, certainly reassured me.
telecommunications and people, of course, will be a, a big challenge there. Um, just conscious of time. Uh, and of course, hopefully it's blatantly obvious that restoration of our infrastructure networks will be a high priority um, as we're seeing playing out with the severe weather events in the North Island at the moment where we had massive impacts to roading, electricity, water supplies and it's had huge implications for many urban and rural communities uh, across Hawke's Bay and Tairawhiti and, and Gisborne and, and beyond. But we have lots of lessons that we can take from this, especially from the Kaikoura earthquake and again from the Canterbury earthquake sequence here. We have a lot of really good knowledge that uh, is being applied and needs to continue to be applied uh, for New Zealand's uh, ongoing disaster resilience. I'm just going to skip through that one um, for the sake of time. One of the points that I think is really important um, to remember is it's likely we will have casualties from an event like this. I, I hope we don't but I think the reality is we probably will have some, and hopefully very few fatalities, but again, it'll depend on what happens. But one of the choices that we do have is our earthquake-prone buildings, and they continue to remain as one of the largest threats to people's lives in earthquakes in New Zealand. Here in Christchurch, um, one of the silver linings of the earthquake sequence um, is that we have cleaned out, so to speak, a lot of our um, earthquake-prone buildings, but we, in our rural communities, particularly across the South Island, there are a number of earthquake-prone buildings in our rural towns and our rural service towns in particular that are earthquake-prone and that we may have challenges with in a large earthquake such as an Alpine Fault event. So it becomes something that I think we need to remain highly aware of. Uh, building damage, of course, and, and impacts from secondary hazards also likely to cause some casualties. There'll be a range of welfare impacts. I, I won't dwell on this because I think we, we're seeing that playing out with the, the North Island severe weather events and, and uh, we have lots of experience from this here. But one of the things that we, again, I stress the point, knowledge is power. And the impacts that we receive, especially to, to, to people, will be dependent on a whole bunch of factors. Of course, there'll be the characteristics of the earthquake. We can't control that. We can't control what the earthquake's going to do. But what we can control is where are people and what do they do in a, in the, when we have an earthquake. So education is key. So drop, cover, hold. I know it's a bit of a mantra. Could save your life. And probably more likely, it'll save you from getting injured in a New Zealand building. Where it's very, very unlikely New Zealand buildings will collapse, unless, of course, you're an earthquake-prone building. But... It's the bits and pieces in them when they're moving around, if we've got unsecured items, or if you panic or, or undertake a behaviour which is um, uh, non-optimal, to, to say it politely, where you're running into a door or you're jumping onto broken glass or, or, or whatever, that's where we see from the ACC injury statistics where a considerable burden of injuries occur in New Zealand earthquakes. So again, I stress the point. Behaviour is something we can control as, as best we can, um, and education is really, really important. One of the things that I think we also need to reflect on, and again, we've, we've lived in this in Christchurch and we're seeing it play out in the North Island now, is what are our, our expectations around habitability and being able to provide safe, um, well-functioning houses for those that have been affected in disasters? And uh, what are we expecting from our service providers and, and beyond? So again, something to reflect on uh, as we think of our longer-term planning. Just that. Okay, so on to the last part here. 
So the, uh, the key messages that we want to leave you with is the next Alpine Fault earthquake is, is uh, I, I, as a scientist, I'm always a bit uncomfortable saying it's inevitable, but I think it's extremely likely and that we're, we're likely to have one of the, uh, a future earthquake. And there's a very high chance that it'll be a magnitude 8. I've presented, or on behalf of the team, I've presented to you a scenario of what might potentially happen in the future. Almost undoubtedly, it'll be different from uh, if, if and when we have our uh, Alpine Fold earthquake, something else will probably happen or, or uh, it won't be quite what we expected. But the scenario that we've got is a really useful thing to plan around because whatever we do will be valuable. Um, we are likely to receive considerable direct and indirect impacts from an, a future event across the South Island and probably into the Lower North Island. But it's the widespread secondary hazards, particularly landslides, um, in our mountainous areas which will present immediate and substantial long-term challenges for us to, to manage. And we're, we're still seeing that playing out in North Canterbury, Southern Marlborough uh, today, even after the Kaikoura earthquakes. We're likely to see areas that will have um, isolation for long periods of time with uh, extended um, critical service outages. And again, we're seeing that in the North Island at the moment. But again, Christchurch should be pretty well placed for that. So it might be that we're more the support hub uh, for those, those communities. And um, what can we do to support that? And Brendan may talk a little bit about um, the incoming support that we might, might need to be providing as well. Um, and I think it's fair to say that in my lifetime, I doubt science or scientists will ever be in a position to usefully predict when an earthquake will occur. Um, but we can prepare for them, and we've got some terrific insights from a number of uh, the, the data sets and, and the models that, that many have produced here. And as I've been trying to convey to you, is we, I think we've all got a plot to play with this. And uh, the mantra, of course, is you know, anything we do now will we'll make a difference uh, for any um, significant future event, whether it be earthquake, severe weather event, tsunami, etc. There's a whole bunch of really cool advice that's available, and I'm glad to see a lot of you have taken some of the, the pamphlets um, at the front of the room. Um, please do, do pick some of them up. But uh, again, just really stress, uh, stressing, your home will be a key place for you to shelter uh, in a disaster event. Um, and particularly for earthquakes, really important securing your, your tall and heavy furniture and, and uh, um, have a think around some of that. There's some terrific advice that uh, Tokutuaki EQC has, has prepared. And, uh, and along with, um, with NEMA and, and others too. Um, lots of really good resources, uh, much of it online, but if you want some hard copy materials, Brendan and, and uh, myself can, can certainly facilitate getting some of that for you. But again, the, the single best thing you can do coming out of here is tell a friend, tell a family member, be that conduit of this, this knowledge that you've received and, and pass that gift on to somebody else. Um, make that emergency plan with your, with your family or your household um, and, and practice it. You know, run a drill. Have an earthquake party. Yeah, pity laughter, thank you. Find out where to go for information, um, household emergency kits, um, all the good stuff there. Um, prepare with enough food, water and supplies. And the messaging on that's changed. It's no longer three days is the recommendation, but, but actually seven days. Um, and if you see what, you know, again, we've, we've had the horrible, horrible reminder of what disasters can do um, with what's happening in the central uh, eastern North Island at the moment, is that it, we could be out of, uh, need those supplies for much longer than that period. So again, think wisely, especially if you've got um, vulnerable people in your household or that you're responsible for.
Um, I'll just pick out a few here, but I, one of the things I quite like is you know, maximise your resources by working with others. You know, preparedness is a team sport. Um, many Cantabrians love, a, love, love our sport, so again, doing it together as a team is, is important. You don't have to do it alone, and, uh, and finding out about that information is really, really key. Look, it's been an absolute pleasure to give this to you tonight. I'm really keen to, to take questions from the floor, but just want to acknowledge all of the, the people and organisations that have all made this, this possible. It's been a massive team effort. And most importantly, thank you for, for coming out tonight. Um, you've been an amazing audience. You've laughed at my terrible jokes. And uh, it's not just pity laugh from my grad students at the back that I've strategically planted. But uh, really grateful that you've come out tonight and uh, yeah, looking forward to some questions. Kia ora. Thank you very much.